You've seen the movie, you've read the book, you've got the t-shirt, now experience it for yourself. Crazy Eddie's Christmas and August TV and video blowout blitz. Crazy Eddie's gonna save you a blizzard of bucks on TVs, VCRs, anything and everything in TV and video. Remember, we are not undersold, we will not be undersold, we cannot be undersold, and we mean it. It's Crazy Eddie's Christmas and August TV and video blowout blitz. See Crazy Eddie now, his prices are insane. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in New York City. And I'm David Kastenbaum in Washington, D.C. Today is Wednesday, August 19th. That was radio DJ Jerry Carroll in a 1980s ad for Crazy Eddie's you heard at the top of the podcast. Today on the show... We're going to teach you how to launder money, how to cheat on your taxes, and how to deceive shareholders. That's right. Planet Money has a new strategy. We want to build our audience by teaching people how to be criminals. We want to train an entire new generation of Planet Money criminals. (laughs) First, we have the Planet Money indicator. The indicator is 783 pages. That's a rough guess, by the way. Are you reading legal documents again? I am. I have these stacks of lawsuits that I have been compiling. I've actually, I'm not joking. I've spent over $100 at Kinko's printing these out. Um, These are all lawsuits out of the financial crisis. There are hundreds of them in which one person is suing someone else saying, you big banker or you hedge fund or whatever, you broke the law or you gamed the system in some illegal way. And we're interested in this because, well, there are two reasons. One, it's always nice to have a villain. And two, more importantly and more boringly, Congress is in the process of trying to rewrite a bunch of financial regulation. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast, uh, trying to make it harder for people to drive the economy off a cliff while making themselves rich at the same time, trying to make it harder to game the system. What's so frustrating about this financial crisis is overall, it's hard to find clear villains. So we were so happy to go back in time, to get in the Wayback Machine and take a case study of a time where there were just plain, simple crooks, people who truly just illegally planned how to game the system and did it. Um, We're talking, of course, about the massive security fraud of the 1980s, Crazy Eddie's. And, you know, I grew up in New York, and you could not grow up in New York in the 70s and 80s without knowing about Crazy Eddie's. I used to go to the big store on 8th Street and 6th Avenue, um, not too far from my house. I used to go there all the time. It was so fun. I bought a Walkman there. I used to buy albums there. I remember sitting and talking for hours about which TV I would buy, knowing that I couldn't actually get a TV for myself. I'd have to watch my parents. And they had those ads, always those crazy ads. It's Crazy Eddie Day! Say big, big, big bucks during Crazy Eddie's Crazy Eddie Day sale. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. Now, David, uh, in full disclosure, the guy in that ad, Jerry Carroll, was not actually a crook. And he was not any part of the fraud, even though he was the public face of Crazy Eddie's. Yeah, I mean, I I heard those too. You know, I was in the suburbs of Philadelphia growing up, and we all knew about Crazy Eddie's. I think I got an equalizer for my stereo from there. It was surprisingly cheap looking back. So I was shocked, like everyone else, to learn that it was all a scam. 
And uh, at, uh, at the time, U.S. Attorney Michael Chertoff called Crazy Eddie Antar the Darth Vader of capitalism. Ouch. Um, this is before Bernie Mad- Madoff really taught us what a truly big scam can be. So we're going to go inside the criminal mind, inside that scam. And we actually have a tour guide, an actual criminal. We talked to Sam Antar, the nephew of Crazy Eddie, and he admitted and I have to say he seems kind of proud uh, that he's a bit of a bad guy. Convicted uh, felon, former criminal chief financial officer of Crazy Eddie's. <laughs> it was a really great interview. So a- Antar says uh, Crazy Eddie's was crooked from the very, very start. They were just uh, crooked on a smaller scale. And like a lot of small businesses, he says they, they, they didn't always pay their sales tax. From 1969 to 1980, our primary fraud was skimming and stealing sales tax. I mean, sales taxes is a license to steal. You collect the money for the New York State Sales Tax Department, you skim off the, you, you not only skim off the profits, but you also skim off that 8% sales tax, which is more than most of the, the operating income of most companies. In fact, there's a joke around the New York State Sales Tax Department. If you eliminated the sales taxes, half the mom and pops in New York would be out of business. It turns out it's really, really simple to hide how much money you make from the government. You just don't deposit the money in the bank. You keep a good chunk of your profits, and then the government has no way of knowing. And so they did this for a while, and and it worked really, really well. But eventually, they had a problem. We had the money in the, the mattresses, the basements, and the seal all over. I mean, we had money everywhere. There was millions of dollars, you know. Whatever. Eventually, you want to do something with the money because cash doesn't earn interest. And in those days, interest rates were relatively high. So this is where they go from skimming taxes to actually full on like international fraud and money laundering. Sam says they found this crooked guy at Bank Leumi, the Israeli bank. And uh, basically what they do is Sam's cousins would fill huge briefcases with cash. He said he's actually, uh, Sam Antar is an expert. You can show him any size bag and he could tell you exactly how much money could fit in that bag. Um, and they would deposit the money in uh, in Bankle Umi in Tel Aviv. And then, uh, and David, I got to admit, I don't fully understand all the details, although we'll, uh, it's very, very confusing. But somehow they, they would use the money at the branch in Israel to get the Bank Leumi branch in New York to lend them money at favorable rates, and there was some tax thing involved. Did you understand yeah, it, David? N- no, but and it made me realize it was actually uh, pretty hard to be a money launderer. It's very complicated, but we'll get. But then they moved in a different direction that is clear and big and and easy to understand. Their big big scam, which is a stock scam, and, and to understand this, there's just two things you need to understand. One is. Um, you know, these are, as, as Sam Antar described it, these are a bunch of guys who lived in Brooklyn, um, not the heights of education. And basically, Crazy Eddie told his nephew, Sam, you've got to get educated. We need someone in this family who really understands finance so that we can be more ambitious in our scams. So he sent Sam Antar to college. And then what, what Sam came up with was the idea that they would take the company public and they would artificially increase the market value of the company by stopping to scam stopping skimming the taxes right david yeah so yeah so it was this great idea they were gonna they had all this sales off the books they were going to slowly bring it back on the books so it would look like increased profits hey more business more business every year even though they're making the same amount of money they're just officially making more and more and more 
at the time I was going to college, I was training. I, I was I was training to be a CPA. I had more financial sophistication. I understood more about how the markets work from just reading the Wall Street Journal from when I was twelve years old. Now it's around nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty. Actually, at the time I graduated college, around nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one, and I had much more financial sophistication. I said, "This is the way the markets work." So they did you sit growth. down your uncles and give them a presentation? Yes, my cousins. Yeah, we sat at the kitchen table, twenty one forty six East Third Street in Brooklyn. At, his old house. Okay, so you did go public? Yeah, we go public in 1984. Success. Now, there's no incentive to skim. There's no incentive to uh, steal the sales tax. Because you guys are majority shareholders. Right. We own all of the stock. The Antar family owns all of the stock. And when you sell the stock based upon inflated profits as opposed to deflated profits from skimming, you make even more money and you only pay capital gains. And are you guys all selling stock all the time? Yeah, the Antars, well, I, I was not the immediate family. I didn't have the same amount of stock that they did. So, But they sold about $100 million worth of stock for about over three years, $90, $100 million. And how much would that really be worth if there was proper valuation? Well, if we were crooks from day one, it was never worth anything. You can't take a crooked company public. So, the, the, so I will go from ground zero. This company was never worth anything. Can, can I ask a question? Go ahead. So just to understand this strategy, this is your brilliant business strategy, which is uh, we've been hiding all these profits. We're now going to start to bring them on the book, so it's going to look like – our profits are going up and up and up, and then we're going to go public. And because the profits in the past years have been going up and up and up, people are going to overvalue the stock. Right, because, because they, they see the growth curve. Wall Street is based up. upon expectation. It's not based upon today's earnings. It's based upon the expectations of earnings one, two, three, four years down the road. You can have two companies with the same profits, same exact income statement, same exact balance sheet, twin split at the egg. But one company will be valued more depending upon its growth potential. Right. So, so that is your plan. You're going to go. You're going to you're going to go public based on this false history yes. of increasing sales. The price of the stock will be much higher than it ought to be, and you're going to own a bunch of the stock because you own the company, and you're going to start to sell that at more than it's worth. Yes, it pays to go legit, so you can commit your next crime. So we should be aware of any company that's making profits. You should be aware of any <laughs> company that doesn't have a hiccup. You should be aware because the road to success has its bumps. The road to success is usually two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, four steps back, five steps forward. When you see a smooth road to success, chances are there's something wrong. Did you think about that? Did you think, oh, we ought to have a down year? No, because we, 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 criminals don't think in those terms. We have this heightened <laughs> sense of, uh, heightened sense of accomplishment, of, uh, uh, of confidence. We don't think in those terms. All right. So, so, you only had, what, four or five years of this triumph of, of this hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah, but I didn't tell you about the next scam, which oh, is okay. the Oh, okay. No, no, please. Museum. Now, all right. So we're pumping up our profits. 1986 comes along. We're in our last quarter. Wall Street expects a 5% revenue increase in something called same-store sales. That's sales in stores that are open during two similar accounting periods, factoring out new store openings. In other words, how much of base sales store growth do you have? And we were running 5% going into the end of February, okay, which is our fiscal year ended on March 2nd, 1986. And Wall Street expected 10%. And Eddie and his father wanted to sell a lot of stock. And they felt that if there was a disappointment in our revenue figure, the stock would go down, they'd get less value. Herein is called the Panama pump. We take the money from Israel, we wire it to Bank Liumi, Panama. 
two separate bank secrecy jurisdictions to create a layer. Now, how do you bring the money into the United States and not run afoul of the currency laws? If you, at that time, if you brought in cash in the United States, more than $10,000, you had to fill out a squeal form, you know, you know, that I brought in cash. Now, criminals have no problem lying on it, but you always try to reduce your risks if you can, just like in your business. Okay. If you bring in checks into the United States, that's a negotiable instrument. You can't bring it because that, that too, you have to fill out the squeal form. But what we do is we bring it in in the form of bank drafts. A check says, pay to the order of. The words to the order of makes a check negotiable and subject to various restrictions and is subject to various disclosures. But a bank draft says pay to. A check cannot, can be negotiated to a third party, endorse the back of it, etc. A bank draft cannot. So we legally bring in the money that we had that we, had, that we had skimmed overseas to, po- to pump up our sales and our profits. In other words, we take previous money that we stole from the company and we give a little bit back so we can sell stock at hyped up prices and uh, make it back that way. And, and you brought this new money in, deposited in your account and said, wow, we made a lot of money. Yeah, because our- you know, it is, I'll tell you what the problem with audit is. They, they, they saw that the money was in the bank and they said, okay, the money's in the bank, the revenues are there. But they didn't look to see how the revenues got there. Later on, an act was passed called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, wonderful act, maybe not strong enough, which, which uh, reformed corporate governance and made the auditors more accountable. Uh, the auditors were forced to look at internal controls more seriously. You see, this case is here. In substance, the money is there, so how did it get there? It had to be a sale. These guys wouldn't have put the money in. But internal control evaluation means how did the money get there? The auditors never looked to see how the money got there. All right. How did, how did, uh, how did this all end? Well, it all ended. It's got to go back. I got to go back to day one to tell you how it all ended. Originally, Crazy A's was ERS Electronics, Eddie, Ronnie, and Sam. Ronnie was the cousin. Well, Ronnie doesn't have the staying power, and Eddie buys out Ronnie Gindy, and Eddie owns two-thirds of Crazy Eddie's, which becomes from sights and sounds to Crazy Eddie's, and his father owns one-third. But his father owned a lot of other businesses, and his father was the patriarch of the Antar family. And the father didn't mind that Eddie owned two-thirds of the small, little, dinky, one-store retail operation because he had other things. But as Crazy Eddie's grows, Eddie's stature rises, and he becomes the de facto head of the Antar family. He was a handsome guy, very, very, you know, um, he was a great speaker, great leader. And his father and his brothers grow jealous of Eddie's success. So, David, this, this is when it just, the family drama, it was actually, I found it truly painful to hear. Antar agreed. It is a despicable family in which father and son, brother and brother, cousin and cousin, they're just backstabbing each other, lying to each other, cheating each other. But for most of the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, everyone's making tons of money. And and so every fight is, they, they reach peace pretty quickly because they know that they can all make more money together than if they were all split apart. But then by about 1987, it all falls apart because by then the family had sold pretty much all of its stock and they didn't have a financial incentive to stick together. And they're all starting to think like, God, what if we go to jail? And so they just all turn on each other. This time, instead of patching things over, Eddie cleans house. He cleans out his father and, and his brothers and their allies. He throws them out of the company. And what do they do? They get even. 
they're worried that the company may be taken over because in those days there was a lot of takeovers and the company people were thinking the company was undervalued and the family infighting was bringing the company down. Nobody knew that on the outside there was a fraud. They were worried that 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 a fraud would be uncovered eventually if the company got taken over and that they would be blamed by Eddie and I. So they sent two witnesses to the United States Attorney's Office as a front and they talk about the frauds minus their side of the family. And they don't talk about any of the skimming from before we were a public company because that would implicate both sides. So these two witnesses lied to the federal government for two years after our fraud is uncovered when we lose control. These two witnesses being your uncles? No, no. Two witnesses. Two non-family witnesses that were associated with that side of the family. I see. So so let me... So what happens? Is there a day, a pivotal day where suddenly... Yeah, 1989. I find Eddie and I find out we've been set up, and Eddie is getting ready to How'd leave to go to Israel, out? because the criminals don't play by the rules, but the government has to. They have to provide documents and discovery. Uh, civil litigants have to whatever, and we get their evidence. Of course, we destroy ours. We never give out anything. We don't give ice in the winter as crooks. But anyway, we find out that we've been set up. Eddie gets is, Eddie separates myself from me. He's getting ready to bolt. And here I am. One side of the family rats me and Eddie out. Then my mentor, I mean, Eddie was 10 years older than me when I started working at Crazy Days when I was 14. My mentor, the guy that you know I worship, he's bolting on me. So what do I do? I cooperated with the feds in 1989. At first, they thought that their witnesses were telling the truth, and I was lying. Eventually, the, the government realizes that their two initial witnesses gave them a Trojan horse. They indict one. The other one, I don't know what happened to, but they don't use those two witnesses again, and I become the government's main, main witness in the Crazy Eddie investigation. Did you do any time? <laughs> no, I got six months house arrest, 1,200 hours community service, 10,000 in fines. I had to pay the SEC $20,000. From, for, for selling stock at inflated prices. Actually, I lost money. Ultimately, lost money on my crazy A stock, but I should have lost more money because it was worth less than what I sold it for. And I, the civil plaint, the people, the victims, because I cooperated them and I showed them where all the bodies were buried, they gave me a complete civil walk. I walked away from crazy A's with, with basically, uh, basically unscathed. Who, who did go to jail? Eddie Antal went to jail for seven years. His brother Mitchell went to jail for two years. His brother Alan was acquitted in the criminal case, but the real story is in the civil case brought by the SEC and the civil plaintiffs. For five more years after the criminal trial in 1993, the SEC and the civil plaintiffs, the class action lawyers, pursued the Antal family money at all ends of the earth. They were able to recover more money than the Antals actually made on the securities fraud because of the previous skimming. How's the Antar family? Are you guys, do you all get together for Passover? No. They you, hate me. They hate you? No, Because you ratted out, out? Yeah, I ratted them out, yeah. yeah. What did you learn? What did I learn? I learned that it's easier to talk about crime, to teach people about crime, than it is to commit crime. It's more fun being on the other side than committing it and taking all the risk. But the fascination with crime still remains the same. Crime really doesn't pay. In the end, you're going to get caught. But watching your demeanor, you enjoy talking about this. It's As I said, I says I enjoy. It's easier to talk about it and to teach others about you know because I trained the I, tra- I trained the Secret Service, I've trained the FBI, the Securities and Exchange Commission, basically every three letter agency that you know of and some that you'll never hear of in the United States government, the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Division. I've gone to college and university. I teach about white collar crime, but it's easier to teach people about the effects and about the criminality involved in white collar crime than it is to actually commit the crime. There's no risk this way. 
And what you do is basically what you did for us? Uh, this is generally how I start out when we talk about the Crazy 84, but I do much, much more detail how you money launder, what the steps are that auditors should have taken but didn't take. But the most important detail that people have to understand that white-collar crime is a brutal crime. It, it's, in many cases, more brutal than violent crime because our crimes inflict a collective harm on society. The actions of one or a few can cause billions of damages. Look at the Bernie Madoff case. And people kind of give us a pass. Like you're smiling now, you two guys are in the studio with me. If I were a serial killer and telling you, you know, how I chopped up dead bodies, we wouldn't be laughing about my techniques, would you? Whatever. But we kind of give the white-collar criminal a pass. And there's no reason for it. If I didn't get caught, I'd still be the criminal CFO of Crazy Eddie today. I was actually going to ask you, do you feel bad about what you did? It's irrelevant what I feel. Do, no, I don't, but I don't, but I don't no, care what it's irrelevant. Do you, do you no, no, or no. don't you? Because do you here's, here's the, the educational point. No, if no, I told no, I you know. I felt bad, does it do anything? If I told you I felt bad, should you believe it? Judge people as a crook that used words to defraud people, right? To misinform people, right? To lie to people. Why should you believe me now if I tell you That's fine. I feel just sorry answer. for my crimes? Well, just tell me, do you? You'll I'll decide know. whether I want to believe you or not. Well, you have to judge me for my actions. I did 11 years of free work for the United States government, for ed- top educational institutions, whatever. Judge me by my actions, not by my words. Why don't you say it, though? Because it is against the criminal, the, it's against the former criminal vocabulary, as I said. All right, okay. I feel sorry for my crimes. Now, do you believe me? I don't want to play a violin of redemption. It doesn't do anything. Apologies are meaningless. People I saw, Bernie Madoff was going up to the, uh, I was on Fox Business Channel, and I was commenting as Bernie Madoff was making his apology. I said, the only reason, I, when I made my apology, I really felt, I was only felt, felt bad that I got caught. What is, what is, what's the relevance of an apology? How does Bernie Madoff or any criminal's apology help any victim? I, I'm not it's asking you, you to apologize. I'm just curious in your head how you feel. I feel bad about it. Yes, I do. I do feel guilty about it. Go, David, go. That was awesome, man. <laughs> you, were, you were great. Um, and, and it was amazing how you just yanked that out of him. And he said, Well, that's I feel the- like he was just, he, 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 he'd sort of said that we're going to talk about everything. And I was like, all right, <laughs> this is the question I have. Right. He sent Caitlin Kenny, our fabulous producer, an email beforehand saying, uh, you can ask me any question. I'll answer any question. Um, but not, do you feel bad? So, um, good for you. He did say that was the first time he's ever said that publicly, that he feels bad. Uh, he set the rules. He is a criminal. Um, <laughs> so, I guess we should take him at his word. We don't know if we can trust him. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here today on Planet Money. Be sure to check out the blog, npr.org slash money. We have a great letter there from a doctor who explains why he is part of the rising cost of healthcare and why he orders more tests than you might think his patients need. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thanks for listening. Here to command the hip hop land, kick it live with a box inside my